This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Are you wearing a Slovenia hat because you think America is turning into Slovenia? <laughs> they have a better democracy than ours, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 12, 2020, the Biden-Biden edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New York by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Oh, hello. And from New Haven by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. On today's GabFest, Nate Persley will join us to discuss the far-fetched legal challenges to the presidential election results and the extremely dangerous consequences of the Republicans' refusal to accept those results. Then Biden's transition. What is he doing? What's he planning for day one? How much will the Trump obstacles delay him? Then the Supreme Court hears a hugely consequential case, another challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. It has been a horrible, horrible week for American democracy. After President-elect Biden's victory became clear, President Trump has accelerated his preposterous legal challenges to the results, challenges that would be much less unsettling if he hadn't dragooned the federal government into helping him out on it and more importantly, if he hadn't cowed or enticed or simply just persuaded or just pleased the vast majority of the Republican establishment into supporting him or at least going along with what he's doing. 70% of Republicans in a poll that I saw say that it was not a free and fair election, which means that even when President Biden is finally seated and inaugurated, confidence in the democratic system will be weakened, the beams rusting in our building near collapse. We are joined again by Nate Persley of Stanford University to talk through some of the legal and political issues we face. Nate, it must be just ridiculously early where you are, so thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. 5.40 a.m. is uh, late for me. It's almost lunchtime at this point. Let the record so. show you're offered the 6.30 a.m. your time slot and <laughs> that, that is asked true. for the earlier one. <laughs> so to start off, Nate, when I look at it, it feels like we're dealing with two issues. One is how likely are President Trump's challenges to succeed? And do they have any chance of blocking the presidency of Joe Biden? And separately, how damaging are the general assaults he is making and the Republican Party is abetting on the legitimacy of the election? How damaging are those for the long-term health of this nation? So you can tackled one either both but i guess the, no, the first one. question is just, i want one just just one <laughs> what are what are president trump's legal challenges do they have any chance of blocking the presidency of joe Biden? so the only way that these legal challenges make a difference is if they overturn the elections in three different states by proving that um the margin of vic that, that the number of 
illegal votes that was cast exceeds the margin of victory in both Republican-run and Democratic-run states to the tune of tens of thousands of votes, as I said, across three states. So um, that's never been done before. There's no evidence that that uh, should happen here. So it seems like almost impossible. Um, now, the the long game here, or even the medium-term game, seems to be to delay the certifications in several of these states so that it may create an environment in which the state legislatures may act. But it doesn't seem, at least at this point, that the state legislatures, who under the Constitution do have the power to appoint electors, are itching to take on that responsibility. Can I um, weigh in, even though I'm not really the expert today? So I've been deep in the weeds of reading some of these complaints and um, paying attention to these hearings. And I completely agree that the evidence is, you know, thin to weak to non-existent. But what I fear is a judge giving some life or air to these complaints in a way that then creates the opportunity for political pressure on some of the Republicans who are in a decision-making position here over certification. So, for example, Michigan. Biden won Michigan by more than 140,000 votes. Totally out of reach. But the complaints allege kind of widespread fraud in Detroit. They have all kinds of affidavits. Mostly it's like a misunderstanding of how the balloting actually works, how ballots are processed. But one of the people who filed an affidavit against Detroit's counting process is the wife of one of the Republican members of the state canvassing board. So Michigan has four people on its canvassing board, two Democrats, two Republicans. They have to certify these results. It's not clear what happens if they refuse to, like maybe it goes to court unclear. And so the idea that there is this tie, this political tie here engaged in the actual lawsuit itself gives me pause, even though it looks to me like the lawsuit is essentially meritless. Well, and that's what I was saying, which is that it's not that the lawsuit itself is going to, you know, vindicate a a finding of how many illegal votes were cast, but you could see it either contributing to the environment of uncertainty or leading to a delay in certification so that then, as you were saying, the political actors would feel emboldened to do something, right? I, I think we still need to try to reinforce the fact that this is an, you know, a real long shot that most of the damage, as David was saying, is more, more to public confidence, as well as the concrete damage that's, that's coming from the fact that the transition is being delayed and that, you know, President-elect Biden can't um, have access to the GSA services, let alone to the national security briefings and the like. But Leaving that concrete damage aside, the, the, the likelihood here of sort of pulling the inside straight de- depends on um, some action by non-judicial actors to intervene in the electoral college process. Nate, it's, it's not just that the president has to pull an inside straight here. It's that he's been dealt, if I can continue the metaphor, incredibly weak cards and there's no, there's no, there's no, doesn't look like he's going to be able to draw anymore. In other words, can you assess not just how complicated it is to pull an inside straight, but the, the how strong on a scale of one to 10, the evidence so far has been in the various court cases or ones that are still in front uh, that his legal team has brought forward? Right now, they're very weak. I mean, because as, as Emily said, right, the, 
the, what they need to prove, right, is that tens of thousands of votes in several different states were fraudulently cast. And there's simply no evidence of that. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. Something I've been working on since the, the polls closed is to try to figure out how you can prove that there was no fraud in places like Philadelphia. And one of the interesting things in Philadelphia, which is sort of held out as, you know, the example by the president, is that the number of people who actually voted in Philadelphia this election is almost identical to what it was in 2016. You did not see a huge increase in turnout in Philadelphia. Uh, and if there were tens of thousands of fraudulent ballots, uh, you would have seen that in the numbers and you just don't see it right now. In fact, didn't President Trump fare better in Philadelphia uh, in terms of his share of the vote than he did in 2016? Yeah, suggesting I mean, the still, very opposite. We're, sti- we're, we're still counting the votes there, of course, but hopefully in the next day or two, we'll have some final results out of Philly. So, Nate, can you just dig into this? point that you and Emily were hitting on, which is what, what what does it take for a state legislature to intervene here, given that in in Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, the margins are pretty significant. Are, is there any evidence that there are state legislators who are willing to sort of say, hey, yeah, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll take advantage of this chaos and, and manufactured uncertainty to appoint a slate of electors, and that'll work? Well, there are, there are individual legislators who for sure believe that, but you do not ha- you'd have to get the majority uh, to act that way. One of the good things in Pennsylvania is that the leaders of the state legislature came out relatively early to say, look, we don't have a role to play here um, under state law that this is, um, you know, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court would be the final word, the governor would certify and so they said that early on. Of course, at the same time, one of the leaders in the Senate said, uh, we're going to have a legislative audit of the results, right? So, so there's still some uncertainty there. But th- this has never happened before. Let's just be clear. So, so even to posit, you know, well, what would it take for the legislature to overturn an election, right? Then we are in, in totally uncharted constitutional territory there. Um, the, the only time where we've really had conflicting slates of electors was in the 1876 election. And that was a, you know, a very complicated, uh, different situation that ultimately did not lead to, say, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate having to adjudicate differences. And so, you know, how this would play out is anyone's guess. I mean, this is what Emily was saying before, which is that you'd need to create an environment of, of uncertainty through the court cases, which would then embolden legislative caucuses in particular states, in three states, right, to overturn the election results. And, you know, at that point, then I think there'd be a hell of a lot of protesting and, you know, people on um, on the Biden camp would be outraged. And, and we have to assume that at some point in there, the U.S. Supreme Court would get involved. It's not clear at what stage they would, but then there would be some intervention to signal whether these uh, legal claims were legitimate or not. I mean, can we also just talk about like what a naked power play this would be and what it would mean for American democracy? I mean, the main test of a democracy is can an incumbent lose an election and leave office? Like that's what we expect of democracies. And for any kind of move by state legislators to get in the way of the will of the voters here, it would just be utterly, utterly contrary to American democratic values. And yes, I think people would pour into the streets. John, it isn't, what do you think the, the motivations are of Republicans who are abetting this? Because had Mitch McConnell and co. just simply come out and said, you, you know, President-elect Biden, there would be a lot less tension sure. and 
it's a double than there is. And but it's not even clear to me that they they want Trump for another four years. It doesn't seem it's like a double they motivation. want it. No, it's not. It's not about Trump for four more years. It's a double motivation. One, they've got to worry about Georgia. They want their voters to be as in, as impassioned as possible in Georgia, and stabbing the president in the back is not a way to do that. And you're talking, um, of course, about the runoff Senate races in Georgia. The two runoffs in, in the Senate races in Georgia, which will determine the the majority in the Senate. So um, separate from the president, they want the base um, enlivened. And the Republican base is two things. It's the Trump loyalists and then regular old Republicans. You can't do it with just one part. You need both. So that's one reason. That's the specific reason. The second reason is this is the first primary of 2024. How much fealty you can show to the president. Why is that important? Because of the five presidents before who didn't make it to a second term, none of them saw their political power in their own party increase, which is what Donald Trump saw. He is he is more powerful now in the Republican Party. And and to the extent that he's claiming that the election has been stolen and is fraudulent, that's the bar. You can't just say he has 100 percent, you know, as Mitch McConnell said, he has every right to ask uh, to look into fraud. That's not what he's doing. He's not just looking into fraud. He's saying the election was stolen and in doing so is convincing his voters that um, that it has been stolen. So he's putting that poison into the Joe Biden administration. Signing up for that is the first thing you got to do in the 2024 primary, it appears. That's why you see Mike Pompeo uh, saying that he looks forward to a peaceful transition to the second term of uh, President Trump. So that's just within the weather in the party right now, leaving Georgia aside for a moment, is about supporting the president. And um, you don't want to look like you were one of the ones who ran uh, when the president was in a tough spot. Nate, can I ask you, is there a term of art in election that helps people understand that just because there might be a few um, actual instances of of uh, fraud or miscounting um, errors uh, or some, yeah, or a mistake or, you know, so in 2004, the Milwaukee Police Department looked into the election, the presidential election there. They found three felons who voted who shouldn't have those felons, I think, were prosecuted. Nevertheless, they found that it didn't have anything to do with the final result, wouldn't have changed the final result or anything. Is there a fast, short way to explain to people that just because you found three cases of fraud, it's not the same as enough to overturn an entire election? No, I mean, I can't think of a, a specific term for that. I mean, you know, in, in law, we talk about harmless error in, in uh, when you review, say, a district court finding or something like that. Um, but you could just say that, you know, it's not a number of Ill- illegal votes that would you know, cast the result into question. I think that, you know, th- this is a very different situation than Bush versus Gore, which is what everybody is is analogizing it to, right? Where you had 500 votes in one state and, and the effort was to overturn that. We are first still trying to count this, the votes, and the number of votes that are implicated in order to uh, overturn the result is is huge. L- let me just say one other thing in response to what David was saying before. It's not clear to me that Republican elites are making the wrong political calculus here. I don't understand what they actually have to lose by going in this direction right now. Um, I think it's damaging um, for the, the country, but uh, I think they might have made the, the right political calculation. It's interesting, just in the last day, I see that uh, Karl Rove wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that I think was very important, trying to say, look, this is not going to go anywhere. There's no way, it's very unlikely that the recounts are going to prove something. Rich Lauer did something similar in the National Review on the 
issue of state legislatures overturning the results. So, so at least outside of the Senate, there is stuff that's going on. And the real question for me is, what are the off-ramps, right? What, what are the different things in the next two weeks where you could see there's a moment. So, for example, when the networks call Arizona, <laughs> will that be an opportunity? Um, um, Carl Rove was talking about when the certifications happen. So that'll be in the next two weeks. But, you know, the, the, they're delaying the transition, which has real, real harms, I think, uh, tangible harms for the next administration. There are also some judicial rulings that are going to come in the next few days or week, and I wonder if cases getting dismissed will have some impact. John, can I ask you a question about the 2024 presidential primary for the Republicans? So I this is going to sound desperately naive, but I, I kind of don't get it. Like, I see t- the short-term political benefits that Nate and you were describing, but in the longer term, if you're Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or even Mike Pompeo, you really want to have to bend the knee that, like, this completely bogus claim that the election was stolen? Like, for the next four years, you want to have to espouse that lie as part of your candidacy? I don't think you'll have to. All you need to do is say that you were with President Trump 100% all the time and then move on to talk about how wonderful you are. I don't think it's... Nobody's going to make it a test if you've checked the box. They will ask if you didn't check the box. Or your opponents will make it a big deal if you didn't check the box. You know, when President Trump was threatened by the socialists and the left and their big media enablers, you, Ted Cruz, ran. So Ted Cruz isn't doing that, despite all of the personal harm that that President Trump did to his reputation and to his families. He has been fully behind uh, not only the idea that he gets a recount, but that there might have been actual fraud. Lindsey Graham but, is the same. But in the long term, they then take you have that to, keep to the ma- that? Sorry, David. Well, no, I, I mean, you're asking a longer term question. I guess my short term question is like, do they take that? You're, you guys are saying, oh, the certifications give them an off ramp or these judicial decisions give them an off ramp. But what if they just keep going at it? Well, no, I think that that's that's the thing we're concerned about. But you could, what does it mean to keep going at it? Is to is to declare that this is illegitimate? I mean, ultimately, Joe Biden is going to be the new president on January twentieth. It doesn't stop people from saying, whether it's the president or his allies, from saying that um, this was fraudulent. Right? Um, you know, we, we we are moving on because the court has said X, Y, and Z. But it doesn't mean that we are going to consider the Biden presidency legitimate. Those aren't inconsistent. How of despair for democracy that we're really necessarily going to have to hear this in any kind of like beyond one more day seems like too much to well, me. Emily, what do you think? Or I mean, Emily or anybody, what do you guys think? Going back to my original second question is how damaging is this assault to the long term legitimacy of democracy? I, I think it's I mean, I am I feel like, wow, when the history of the United States is written but in China and in in so elsewhere, they're going to be like this was this was a moment when this was an end of the Roman Republic kind of moment for this country, well, because th- it will have this pervasive, unsettling and mistrust will set in over our elections. So, so let me give a possible glass half full answer here, which is not in my nature, and that is that. Um, <laughs> Look, after Bush versus Gore, we were quite polarized. Um, of course, it took 9-11 in order to, do, to sort of erase that polarization, right? So de- it really does depend on how the Biden presidency performs and whether they meet crises in a way that will sort of change the narrative. But barring that, I do think that now there are – it is becoming part of the orthodoxy that this election was not 
fairly run, and that that will have effects for every election because people will simply not trust the vote in ways that they may have historically. I mean, the levels of polarization that we're seeing are really disconcerting. I mean, you mentioned the 70% to, of Republicans who don't trust the result. And you're, you know, you're seeing that in, in particularly on, on aspects of the electoral system, like mail balloting, we're seeing huge part of partisan polarization, which we didn't actually have before this election. And so I think that's going to have a lot of staying power. Can we also just talk for one moment about the bananas stuff happening in Georgia? So in Georgia, they have an election, the Republicans lose. They turn on their Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who like yesterday was totally like a, you know, a typical Republican kind of pro making it harder to vote state official. Like he, you know, set up this um, task force to investigate quote, absentee ballot fraud several months ago that I was writing about is like, hey, this is really going to discourage an effort to discourage people from voting because it makes it sound like you're going to get in trouble if you set one foot wrong. Suddenly, he is like persona non grata in the Republican Party in Georgia. So you have Purdue and Loeffler, there are senatorial candidates calling for his resignation, the entire Republican congressional delegation doing so, the governor suggesting that there was something wrong with how Raffensperger conducted this election. Now he's doing a hand recount in Georgia, which as far as I can tell, isn't even clearly like what the law provides right now. It is crazy. It's basically, we don't like the election results, so now we're going to turn on the person who had the temerity to actually do the election. What's strange about Georgia is that we don't even know what the accusation of fraud is here, right? right? At least in, in, in Pennsylvania, we've got very specific allegations. Here, it's like, what, well, what actually happened? Was there you know, false absentee ballots that were submitted? What, the other thing that's really interesting, I mean, you mentioned the congressional delegation has gone after him. So these are people who actually won their elections, Right. So they they won their elections and are accusing the secretary of state of running a fraudulent election in the elections that they won. Right. And so it's it would be strange to see if there was fraud at the top of the ballot, but not uh, going down to their races as well. Nate personally is a professor of law at Stanford and, of course, stays deeply on top of all election matters. And what's the organization you're part of, Nate? I forgot the name of it. Healthyelections.org. Healthyelections.org. Nate, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. So, John, Emily, this is a remarkable time, but we don't want to let something pass unnoticed. And that is the fact that we have been podcasting together for 15 years. I can't 15 years. It. Yeah, it's also coincidentally how long it feels since the election. <laughs> that means we've been podcasting for 30 years. In any case, this 15-year anniversary calls for a celebration. And on December 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we are going to be online for a special live show to celebrate our anniversary presented by the winemakers featuring Round Pond Estate Napa Valley. We have a lot to talk about as we look back on 15 years of disagreements and fantastic discussions and laughs and cocktail chatter. And throughout the show, we'll be tasting three specially selected wines from Round Pond Estate Napa Valley. And if you'd like to join along at home, they're making that experience available to GabFest fans. In honor of this 15th anniversary event, Round Pond Napa Valley has offered this three-wine companion case exclusively to listeners at 35% off what you'd pay in the tasting room. So join us for this fun wine tasting experience. Learn a little bit about left bank wines and help us celebrate our 15th anniversary in style. Taste these three specially selected wines along with us from the comfort and safety of your home. Just text 
GABFEST to 351-444-9463. Supplies are limited, so order soon to get your companion case in time for the live event. Text GABFEST to 351-444-WINE to get these wines and this incredible one-time-only price and join the party from the comfort and safety of home. For links and more information, visit slate.com slash live. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joe Biden is off to a running start insofar as you can run when your opponent keeps hurling bricks at you and erecting large barriers in the middle of the track. He has named a pandemic or COVID advisory team. He has hinted, or his team has hinted about day one plans. He has named Ron Klain, his longtime close advisor, as his chief of staff. John, what parts of this transition seem normal? What parts seem abnormal? Well, I, one thing, just let's pull the lens back really far. It was a confusing week of presidents. So you know, on the one hand, you have Joe Biden doing things that look presidential, which might seem unfamiliar to us because we haven't seen him in four years. But I mean, you know, he's taking the necessary and appropriate steps that everybody would expect to deal with the biggest challenges before him. That alone is a departure from what we've seen. And he's coming out and he's talking and just basically things are proceeding in a sort of presidential way. Then we have a shadow government, and the shadow government is the actual president, who has been something of a shadow in the last week. Yes, he's still tweeting. His lawyers are out losing court cases. But, I mean, he hasn't been ever present in the way um, he was beforehand. And then coming on stage from the left uh, is Barack Obama shouldering his 700-and-whatever-page uh, memoir of his presidency, which that rollout begins this Sunday. So it's like we've got presidents upon presidents. So what Biden, though, is doing in the transition is behaving like a transition. I mean, that's um, that's the first thing he's doing. What his choices, what's interesting about them is, A, 
he recognizes the seriousness of the transition and that's what his transition teams show. He's picked experts, people with with um, uh, and it's just ship shape. You know, it's the way you're supposed to do this. The reason uh, it's such a big deal that he's being denied access to intelligence briefings and the and all those other things is not just that he doesn't get to see what's going on behind the curtain, which is important for planning, but it's also important for knowing who to hire. If you if you're about to engage in four years of cyber warfare, that's something you might want to consider when you're making your hiring decisions. But secondly, he doesn't have access to the FBI and the FBI does the background checks. He's got to hire 4000 people, 1500 of whom have to get Senate confirmation. That's a lot of background checking that has to get into play. Why is this important? The 9-11 Commission uh, wrote about how the delay as a result of Bush v. Gore put the national security team of the Bush uh, administration well behind where they needed to be when they came into office. That was fixed afterwards in a series of reforms that the president is now blocking Joe Biden from taking. So that all matters. Final point is Ron, Ron Klain is kind of the antithesis of the the Trump chiefs of staff. Here's a person who has experience in Washington, believes in systems, understands the way you get things done in a presidency. He was a very smart pick. And if if Richard Norton Smith told Chris Whipple, who wrote a great book called The Gatekeepers about chiefs of staff, that that presidents define themselves by the paintings of their predecessors they hang in the Oval Office in the Roosevelt Room and by their chief of staff. And this shows that Biden has a kind of serious and traditional approach to running a White House, very much of departure from President Trump. So, John, in light of what you were just saying about the background checks and the 9-11 and the dangers, why did Biden minimize the disruption to the transition? I mean, I sort of appreciated how much he downplayed um, President Trump's like personal conduct because it just put it in perspective for me. But why was he like, this is all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, it, so we don't want to go too far out on this theory, but it, it exists. He's showing restraint. Another thing we haven't seen in four years. So one of the keys in the, when it's all written about the success of Biden's presidential campaign, one of the key things may be that in a process that discourages restraint, he showed it in two crucial ways. One, he didn't go fully to the left in the primaries, which gave him his credibility that allowed him to win the mid Midwest. And then he in the general election, basically his campaign stayed off Twitter. I think those are preliminary conclusions people have drawn about the way he ran this campaign, both of which are examples of restraint. Now he's the president-elect and he's shown restraint in the instance you talked about, Emily. First of all, that's being presidential, right? Instead of turning up the flame, he turns it down. So that's just refreshing. But secondly, it's important for two reasons. One, he his political pressure on Republicans is not going to make a move. If anything, it's going to put them further in their corner. He understands the pressure that's that that they are they are under. He doesn't excuse it. He just understands it. And there's a huge difference between the two. He understands that if he pushes them further, they're not going to help him. So what good is that going to do? So he's just saying, you know, it'll all work out because he wants to make the wish the father of the reality. So he's got more power saying it's all going to work out and calming people than he does saying, look at these bad Republicans. Plenty of people and enough people are saying that. And so he's he's uh, taking another another road, which I think is is probably wise. Do you, do you think, John, that Biden is in communication with McConnell? That's the question that's been uh, haunting, not haunting me, but yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I don't know. I mean, you got to think they are, um, but I haven't been able to find that out. Um, 
Because I think I would feel a lot better if I was like, oh, okay, all right, they they are talking. Channel. There's sure. a back channel. Uh, yes, but, but you would, but it would undo itself if we all knew about it. If we all knew, right? Of yeah. Course. I mean, you would, you would almost certainly imagine that if they're not in direct consultation, that people are in consultation. I mean, Ron Klain has worked with the the McConnell operation because he was Biden's chief of staff when he was vice president. Um, I mean, this is the advantage, if there is an advantage in this moment that one can grab, of knowing how this stuff works. Like your instinct, David, that they would be in conversation is a really plausible one and is probably the case. And people who have been a part of the system in Washington would know how to do those things, right? You're not coming in to tear everything apart. You're coming in and, and operating by some of the kind of old-fashioned back ways. So you can imagine that's the case and that that would inform, again, why what I was claiming Biden was doing before, which is, you know, a lot of times there'll be back, like Ted, the famous story Ted Kennedy would tell or that was told about Ted Kennedy is he would say, look, and I can't remember which negotiation this was in. It was with McCain, maybe. He would say, look, we're going to go beat the shit out of each other in public, and then we'll come back and work on the deal. But like everybody knew there was an inside game and an outside game and and to separate the two. And so you could imagine, and this is pure fantasy, not backed up by reporting, but that Biden would say, look, I'm not going to put any pressure on you. I know what you're dealing with. And that that would be something that um, a McConnell or a Republican leader would appreciate and therefore perhaps pay back in the next round of, of activity. So, Emily, reports are that President Biden would unleash a flurry of executive orders early, early on. What do you think he would go after? How solid do you think those are? And do you think that his executive orders are going to be judicially knocked down in a way that Trump sometimes were, but that the Supreme, the Supreme Court kind of gave Trump a pass on a lot of stuff. Do you think this, this Supreme Court would do the same for Biden? Legally speaking, there are two kinds of executive orders. They're the kind that you can just like issue right away that uh, reverse previous orders. And then they're the kind that you have to put through the whole notice and comment process, which takes a really long time and is cumbersome. So I am giving you a kind of technical, boring legal answer. I would expect the Biden team. I expect team, nothing less. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I would expect the Biden team to know how to do notice and comment, which was sometimes early on a challenge for the Trump lawyers. I think in terms of this question of how much deference is the president going to get, um, this is now an area of law that is somewhat unsettled, um, or at least seems like it could be sort of up for grabs before the Supreme Court. So, of course, we have a brand new member. We have kind of one... Uh, one or two or three sets of challenges to what is basically deference to federal agencies, like the idea that they write the rules and regulations after Congress issues broader mandates and laws. And for years, we've had various forms of deference, which the courts have basically said, okay, we're going to defer to the experts and the agencies. There has been some whittling away at those doctrines. There's also like a big challenge to almost the whole concept of agency deference practically. But at, at the moment, it hasn't had five or six votes. So we don't sort of quite know how that will what that will look like, what form those challenges will take. And then on the other hand, there's the idea of the unitary executive, like the all powerful president. And we've seen some gesturing toward that direction by the Supreme Court. But again, they could 
pull back on it, um, either for partisan reasons or just because the cases that come before them are different from the ones um, that have proceeded. One area of law I think we're all going to be looking closely at is the census. It depends a lot on whether the Trump administration follows through on its threat to strip undocumented immigrants out of the apportionment count that it gives to Congress. If they do follow through on that threat, there will be, I would imagine, interest in and pressure on the Biden administration to reverse that decision, whether they have the authority to do that, if Congress doesn't act on its own to do so, like that's going to potentially be a big issue of executive presidential power that could happen relatively early. Actually, that gets to one of the other questions I wanted to get at, John, which is we have seen at the Pentagon already this extraordinary uh, purge and filling of the Pentagon with some really uh, unlikely and dangerous Trump uh, Trump lackeys, Trump toadies, have taken very senior Pentagon jobs for these, what will be the last couple of months of the Trump presidency. What is the, what are the things that, that President Trump can do in these last couple of months? It's clear he's not going to, he's not going to be a quiet custodial president if he doesn't want to be. What are the things that he might do that are threatening? I mean, Emily's just cited a really interesting example from the census, which I didn't even think about. Are there others you can think about? Well, there's there's a debate. Yeah, so this is a different... Feels like there are three... Let's see. Maybe three dramas going on. Maybe more. One is the burning burning of democratic furniture, which is to say these claims of fraud that that insert poison into the public and that poison doesn't go away. But Joe Biden is still president and it's just a more poisonous country as a result. Then there is the actual effort by the president to overturn the election. And it's a legitimate effort. And I, my understanding from the reporting I've done is that that circle is getting smaller and smaller um, in the White House and that there will start to be conflicts with people who know the election's over, who know that there is not a, a hint of the kind of fraud that would be necessary and therefore will 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 bristle against this effort. And that would include and the, you know, the executive branch is a big thing. So it's not everybody in there is loyalist. So that's its own drama. And then the third drama is the burn the ships drama, which is what you what, what you asked your original question about, which is what kinds of things could be done knowing that they're headed to defeat or headed out the door, what could be done? One of the things that have, there's been some writing about is the effort by the president to declassify some information related to the Russia investigations, and in so doing would expose sources and methods for the intelligence community in the way they um, get information. And the head of the CIA, uh, Gina Haspel, has been pushing against this very hard, has had um, Secretary Esper at uh, previous Secretary of Defense, um, and a variety of others, including the leadership of the Republican leadership in Congress. So that's one of the debates is about basically letting out some secrets to um, vindicate the president, but in, do in so doing, causing real harm for ongoing operations. And I would just add in my little idea about the you know, the president-elect being the actual president and the actual president being the shadow president. We had all these uh, foreign leader phone calls in which the foreign leaders behaved the way you do when you're trying to ingratiate yourself with the next president, you know, saying lots of like bubbly things about the next president, which shows the political instinct at work. But you see Boris Johnson, who um, was being uh, ribbed by one of his opponents in parliament, 
saying the thing he was really enthusiastic about talking to uh, the, the opponent ribbed him and said, what advice do you have for your erstwhile friend, Donald Trump, who's lost the election? And Boris Johnson ducked that and said, what I'm really excited about, though, is I talked to Joe Biden about this climate change meeting we're going to have in London and that we're going to host. So two things, three things. He's showing enthusiasm for Biden. He's not defending the president. And three, he's talking about climate change, which is something which obviously has not been a focus of this president and being excited about it. So it just is another way in which the page feels turning, even though it might not within the existing White House. All right, Emily, last piece here. We're in the midst of a devastating pandemic, which is 145,000 cases yesterday, worst day of the pandemic. Um, the Trump administration is completely absent, uh, except for complaining that this Pfizer announcement of its vac- successful vaccine trial came too late for them. Um, but President-elect Biden has named a extremely blue ribbon. It's like a, you couldn't, whatever the most blue blue could be, uh, advisory commission on the pandemic, including our guest Ezekiel Manuel, Matul Gawande, a bunch of really distinguished epidemiologists and virologists. What do you make about what President-elect Biden seems to be planning for his uh, pandemic strategy? I mean, to put the the smartest people and the most knowledgeable, informed scientists to work, um, and that is a big relief. Looking at that list of names uh, just made me feel better. And yet, it just feels like the virus is raging out of control. And Biden's ability to actually do anything is two months away. And that... It was upsetting just to watch the rates of infections and death and hospitalizations rise to this extent and to read about, you know, feared shortages of PPE in rural hospitals. Like, I just, it's like this terrible deja vu from last spring, and I, I just kind of can't believe it. Yeah, if only the president were as credulous about COVID-19 as he has been about election fraud. Yep, and is on it. So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And by being a member, you also support the important journalism that Slate has been doing. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. If you aren't one, we are going to talk about how to remake the presidential inauguration for the age of COVID. That is going to be our Slate Plus topic today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Emily, when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated uh, for the Supreme Court, the case that transfixed Democrats, the case on which they they hung the Amy Coney Barrett Barrett hearings, was a case that the court heard this week about the Affordable Care Act. And the the accusation or the, the implication in the Barrett hearings was that with Barrett's arrival on the court, there would now be enough votes to overturn the Affordable Care Act with this really far-fetched legal challenge that had made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The court heard it. Barrett heard the arguments this week. What happened? What happened was that um, it looked like there were five votes for upholding 
almost all of the ACA in a way that would allow people to keep their health insurance. Totally unclear how Justice Barrett will vote, but both Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh said at the hearings that the argument for what's called severability seemed clear to them. And so this would mean that the court could potentially strike down the individual mandate. Oh, my God. This could presumably mean... I constantly have Just keep it. it. We've said that so many times. It's like, yeah, it's just like whatever. It's like you had to say that damn phrase for 12 years. And it's just... uh, the, it could presumably mean that the Supreme Court could strike down the individual mandate, which has been zeroed out of Obamacare. Um, it makes me feel like I'm being pulled by my hair to remember all of this. But, you know, originally the individual mandate was supposed to be totally crucial to the whole operation of the law. Then Congress turned it into a zero penalty in 2017. Turned out it didn't matter. People still signed up for the health insurance exchanges anyway. But the legal argument before the Supreme Court is that if it's at zero, it can't be a tax, which is what the court said the ACA was or the individual mandate was when it upheld Obamacare the first time around under Congress's tax and spend powers as opposed to its Commerce Clause powers. Okay. So, all of that could Wait, happen. Wait, can I just paint a visual portrait? Emily, throughout that entire discussion, had her eyes closed as though she was, <laughs> as though she was deeply in some deep, kind of deep state of cogitation. <laughs> it was, you know, how like the, sometimes in a movie they show like a mystic being taken by the spirit. That's the way you were. You were trying to get through it. Mystics are like having visions, and I'm just trying to like make it through this case. I am so tired of this challenges to this law. Okay, so forget about it. We don't need the individual mandate anymore. It, they can strike it down, and it's okay because, as is completely logical, at least five justices appear to concede and believe that this part of the law is what's called severable from all the many thousands of other pages of the law. And essentially, the argument here is very simple. It's that if you don't need the individual mandate to make the ACA work, then you get rid of it and you leave the rest of it there. There was resistance to this very logical idea from Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, who were harumphing about the fact that back in the day, the individual mandate seemed like it was really crucial. But in, that was not what Congress appeared to believe in 2017 at all. And then there was this weird like backflip that Thomas and Alito were trying to do to get the plaintiff standing. I mean, that's another whole thing is like, why do the Republican attorneys general from various states who are challenging this law or individual plaintiffs, why are they even harmed by this zeroed out penalty? It is not at all obvious that anyone should have standing to challenge this law. But then Alito and Thomas were basically arguing that like, the other parts of the law that were implicated by the individual mandate should provide standing, which seemed totally backwards to me. In any case, I do think that the ACA will live to see another day. It will be interesting to see how Justice Barrett votes. I want to actually go to this exchange that I skimmed through between Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Chief Roberts. Justice Roberts and to you, sir. And Don Varelli. Is that how you spit About say? broccoli? About broccoli. Well, that that back in the day, Borelli had made the argument before Roberts and the Supreme Court that had uh, allowed the ACA to survive its biggest legal challenge when Roberts, Roberts cast the deciding vote. And at the core of that argument was this idea that the individual mandate was the, the heart of the law. And 
then they get rid of the individual mandate and it turns out it was not the heart of the law that because people were so <laughs> eager to have the chance the right to be able to buy health insurance they didn't need to be pressured into doing it and so i think roberts seems at least in the arguments this week to have been kind of miffed that there had been such a misunderstanding of how important the mandate was and and in fact that the congressional research service who had who had investigated the law had said without the individual mandate this law cannot stand it it people won't by insurance. And it turned out to be completely wrong. So I do yeah, think there's, a, there's some skepticism. It. There's some skepticism on everyone's part warranted here because like what they predicted would happen did not happen at all. Yeah. Well, there's lots of policy skepticism, which is different from the legal posture of the case, to be clear. But I mean, I totally swallowed that idea that if there wasn't a penalty, then people wouldn't sign up for the insurance exchanges. And then they wouldn't have the broad kind of pool of them, of people in them that we need to make those exchanges work, right? That was the argument, that like, young, healthy people wouldn't opt in. And then we would only have six people. And the Either the health insurance companies would go bankrupt, ha, 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 or the prices would go through the roof. And that just turned out to be wrong. Like, people wanted the health insurance. There was more benefit, more carrot, and so you didn't actually need the stick. But Roberts, I'm not sure Roberts was actually miffed or if he was sort of joking. Who knows? Maybe you can tell if you actually listen to what he said. But legally speaking, this is like arguing about two rounds ago of litigation, right? Because the argument that this law was like making people eat broccoli was an argument about Congress's Commerce Clause power to pass the law. And when the Supreme Court upheld the ACA in that original case, which I believe is 2012, they rejected the Commerce Clause argument that Verrilli made then, and they said, no, 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 it's based on Congress's tax and spend authority. And in fact, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that opinion. So we have moved on from that discussion, except that, guess what? We're still talking about it, which is sad for me. And what's wrong with broccoli? Well, Justice Scalia was <laughs> outraged kidding. that the government might try to get you, make you eat broccoli. That was his analogy to show how wild and crazy it was to allow the government to tell you that you had to buy health insurance. Next, they were going to tell you to eat broccoli, which I guess he doesn't like. I am a big fan of broccoli, and we eat a ton of it in my house. It's like really the green vegetable that my children will eat. It's interesting. I, my, my children, too. What, how, what's your go-to broccoli recipe? I've, I've I mean, just switched. Just, Oh, tell me, because we stir fry it like I I stir fry broccoli every night and I can't even get them to eat broccoli rob, which I really like. That's like Mm. a fight. What are you switching to? Well, no, to my new go to recipe. It used to be just kind of a nice uh, sort of um, steamed or boiled quickly and then with olive oil salt. Um, But it's uh, oven roasted. So Mm -hmm. you create a lot of surface area, olive oil, a little bit of garlic, salt, pepper, and browns it. Oh, delicious. Yeah, we Both eat a of lot of that, good. too, in the winter, but we mostly just stir-fry it endlessly. Stir-fry with a little sesame oil and sesame seeds? Sure. Yeah, that's really good. Or, you know, basically any kind of spice. It's like depends which night it is. Like is, there, is there a vegetable which can go from zero to 60 more quickly than broccoli, which is to say that you can, I guess Brussels sprouts and spinach would be worse. But in other words, something you, when you do it wrong, Ooh, do you do it oh wrong? Oh my God, you overcook it in yeah. like two minutes and then yeah. it's like lies there limply and yeah. you're like, oh my God, do I really have to eat this? That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's, I mean, you want to go get, never mind. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, I mean, Brussels sprouts is a great example because I remember as a kid, Brussels sprouts were anathema. Brussels sprouts were disgusting. The only well, way people served them were them, they're boiled. Disgusting. They're disgusting. I never but why eat didn't them people know? Way. Why didn't we know? 
Because that was like the British way of like over boiling everything. And Jews do that too. And then we were stuck with bad food. Whereas if you saute them or roast them, they're like my favorite thing. Or if you shred them in salad, which I don't have the patience to do, but I love it when restaurants do that. When I used to go to restaurants, ha ha ha. So much better than the ACA. Let's go to cocktail (laughs) chatter. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are uh, having a broccoli cocktail, a brocktail as we call it, uh, John, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, I'll be like everybody else, be uh, saying that I'm enjoying Queen's Gambit. Um, and it's making me want to try and take up chess again, which I've done repeatedly and failed to succeed at. Uh, but secondly, I'll be um, chattering about um, uh, Garner's Quotations, A Modern Miscellany by Dwight Garner. It's basically the Oh my God, that is the perfect thing for you. I was listening to the Culture Fest people talk about it and I thought of you. Yeah, the harvesting of his commonplace book, which I think I first read about 30 years ago or more. Thomas Jefferson kept one, lots of people kept them, which is basically just a book in which you write down things you um, like that you read in quotes and little snippets. And so he has done this. And it not only contains great ones like this quote, and then the attribution. Neither am I. That's from Peter Cook responding to the boast, I'm writing a novel. Um, <laughs> and this is, uh, <laughs> right? Exactly. It works. It's just so great. I don't even want to explain how it works. It works so well. Um, um, the other is, uh, another good one from the collection is, we courted in the style preferred by the English, alcoholica. Uh, that's from Joseph O'Neill in Netherland. Um, this is the life I always wanted. Social distancing without disapproval. Tom Stoppard. Um, anyway, wh- it's not only contains great quotes and different kinds of great quotes, but when you read them one after the other, that is a rewarding experience as well. So you can open it up at any page, but then you also can read it from end to end And they kind of, some relate to each other, some don't. Some relate in direct ways, some relate in quite tangential ways, the way two lines of poetry might. Anyway, it's just, it's a delightful little experience. Emily, what's your chatter? I read a story in the Washington Post this week that just thrilled my heart in search for um, journalistic heroes. It is about Robin Kemp, who lost her news job in Clayton County, Georgia, and then set up a website and became the person who lots of vote watchers were turning to last week because she was the only journalist to watch all 21 hours of Clayton County's marathon tabulation of absentee votes from 9 a.m. Thursday to 5 a.m. Friday. And this turned out to be a really important district in Georgia that helped Biden close the statewide gap with Trump. And it also was the heart of uh, the late Representative John Lewis's old district. So there was this sort of very potent symbolism associated with Clayton County that night. And I just loved reading about Robin Kemp. Like, she didn't even have a full nonprofit set up. So when donations started to come into her from GoFundMe, like, she had to scramble to figure out how to accept them. And she's just like, doing her job, covering, you know, local controversies and zoning hearings and all the things that you need to know about if you live in a place. And since Clayton County has basically turned into a local news desert, it just was inspiring to read about her efforts. So I loved the story. It's by Reese Thebolt, whose name I am probably pronouncing wrong, in the Washington Post. Robin Kemp lost her news job in Clayton County, Georgia, but she kept reporting the news. 
my chatter is also a Washington Post story, which I saw this morning by Robin Dixon. And it's about a war that I didn't know what was going on between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an enclave. I guess it's an ethnically uh, Armenian enclave within Azerbaijan that Armenia had wrested control of some years ago. And so it's mostly populated, I think. Please, Armenians and Azerbaijan, Azeris, do not at me if I get some of this wrong. The story is not really about that. <laughs> oh, definitely uh, at him. Uh, <laughs> right at him. You have been... Uh, <laughs> I have a friend. I had a friend who got email from like Macedonians for literally twenty years because he misidentified or mislabeled what was Macedonia at some point. Anyway, please, please don't. But the point of the story is that Azerbaijan uh, launched this war against against the the Nagorno Karabakh um, to regain control of it and used all these drones that had developed armed drones, which absolutely devastated the Armenian forces. And basically, they won the war just with these these drone strikes, which wiped out all of the anti-aircraft, uh, all of the, the artillery, all of the tanks, uh, all of the, the sort of visible armored positions that the um, Armenians had. And it's just a really interesting story about the possible future of warfare. It does seem that one of the reasons was that the Armenian weaponry was an old was old weaponry that didn't have any drone defenses and that there may be drone defenses that are developed but it was a like a good sense that that actually this these robot warriors could be more devastating than we even think and really uh reshape how wars are fought so check that out in the washington post listeners you've also sent us great chatters continue to send us great chatters by tweeting them to us at, at slate gabfest this week, a very funny piece uh, sent to us by Joshua Weaver at at we4v3r, um, which is a article in Chicago Magazine about a Chicago liqueur or Chicago uh, drink called Malort. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Probably not. Uh, and which is titled, No One Can Agree on What Malort Tastes Like, but the descriptions are amazing. And it's one of these extremely strong tasting liquors. It's a wormwood-based liquor, and so some of the, the they have some of the quotes, which are, "What can you say about drinking Malort that hasn't already been said about drinking pesticide?" When you're putting your kids' shoes on, and it's getting when you're putting you're getting kids' shoes, and it's getting to be time to replace them. The way they smell is how Malort tastes. Anyway, <laughs> there's a lot of examples of that, which are pretty funny. So check that out. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is our editorial director, June Thomas, managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of the Slate podcast, Satrapy. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Please tweet chatter to us at, at @slategabfest and follow us on Twitter there, too. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Yeah, me too. All right. Uh, let's talk about a Dickersonian-inspired topic. John, frame it for us. Well, it, with the tragic and thoroughly predictable rise in COVID cases and hospitaliza hospitalizations, we face the prospect that things are going to be even worse in early January when the Biden presidency starts with inauguration. And so it may very well be 
necessary to do with the Biden inauguration, what they did with the roll call of states in the Democratic Convention, which is not have an in-person physical inauguration, but come up with some clever alternative, which seems to me to be a, a challenge that should be accepted with some excitement, even though the reasons for doing so are not exciting at all and incredibly tragic. But you know, imagine the opportunity to to pull the whole country into this inaugural experience, to be creative in the way that the Democrats were successfully creative with the uh, roll calls, which made everybody feel sort of joyous and upbeat, even maybe if you weren't even a member of the Democratic Party, because it celebrated the kind of quirky loveliness of all of our individual 50 states. So the question then becomes, how and what would you do to have a virtual non-Washington inauguration you already cited the thing i was going to do which was me too what else are we supposed to say you gotta do it again guys that was great do the roll do the roll call again well that's not do it all around the world you ask people to like say hi to joe biden no it's the american inauguration emily i think you could have an international component to it why are you being so Mm. domestically focused well, the question then becomes, what are the goals of an inauguration? It's, you, you know, it's to, it's to celebrate America. OK, that that. But it's also to, you know, extend the olive branch and show the other side that lost that you hear them. I mean, that's not what President Trump did, but this is what presidents do. <laughs> really? Um, and 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 to send the opposite of the American carnage message. So how would you do that? You can't just pull out John Kasich again, uh, you know, as lovely as he may be. Because something has now happened, and there is obviously all of the um, ugliness of the president claiming that the election has been stolen. So, how would you achieve? How would you achieve that in a non-virtual? I mean, obviously you can do it rhetorically, but could you take advantage of that in addition to taking advantage of celebrating the coalition? Because what the president, what President-elect Biden has done, is not just rebuild the the blue wall in the Midwest. But he's made inroads in the South, and he's won in Arizona, which means he flipped a state, a Republican state, in the in the Sun Belt. I mean, that's a pretty major—you want to hang a lamp on that if you're doing an inaugural address in addition to other things. Right. But if could you figure out a way to involve people virtually around the country that wasn't just Democrats? Yeah. Right? Like— or maybe, I mean, maybe you don't even try. Maybe you just celebrate the Democrats who um, lifted you to power in those places. But if you could figure out a way to reach beyond the base, that would seem to me to be like a good television message. Yeah. I don't know what nonpartisan <laughs> avenues I'm well, suggesting. Well, I mean, I think that you, you try to find, because you, you can do the, the wasn't there a good, uh, the LeBron James um Virtual graduation, the virtual commencement, ha- was really good. I think you 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 could do a inauguration that is like the virtual commencement, lots of musical performances, but where you try to get the performers to represent a real cross site. You f- try to find. I mean, I guess one of the problems that Trump had is there are no conservatives in the popular culture who anyone likes or cares about. But you try to find like some of them, like the ones who are to to be performers, but maybe they don't exist. That's that's one of the issues. Uh, no, I, was, I think they exist, right? I mean, I think who? just representing lots of different genres. I have no idea. You know, I'm like a cultural, a pop culture idiot. But there must be people in various genres who perhaps John, like the heirs to John Prine. That's who you want, right? 
GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.